40 here. So what do what do people who oppose COVID restrictions and uh, bank bailouts and real by experts, what do these people have in common, right? They're generally populist, they're generally MAGA, they're generally Trump supporters. So if you strongly oppose the extent of American intervention in Ukraine, then really Donald Trump is uh, pretty much the, the only one who is singing from your prayer book, right? Ron DeSantis, all right, he, he sounded like he was differing with Joe Biden, but there really wasn't uh, much, much substance between Ron DeSantis and Joe Biden. But if you want a real you know, break with Joe Biden's policies, then then looks like Donald Trump is still the one who's standing out. So, yeah, this is Michael Tracy. Statement from Ron DeSantis is politically clever. It's worded in such a way that it gives the impression he's vaguely opposed to current U.S. policy in Ukraine. But the actual policy positions articulated, right, such as against sending F-16s U.S. troops, are substantially no different from Joe Biden's stated position. So should the U.S. continue provisioning arms in perpetuity to Ukraine? Should the U.S. compel the initiation of peace negotiations? Ron DeSantis says nothing that would answer either of those core questions. Conversely, Donald Trump calling for the U.S. to immediately initiate negotiations, he does substantively break from current U.S. policy, right, which purports to defer to Ukraine on all major strategic objectives and purports to reject the idea of the U.S. just uh, negotiating on its own with, uh, with Twitter. So it's interesting that... Uh, Donald Trump is still standing alone and he released some amazing videos. So here he says, I'm the one standing in the way between you and our enemies. Just an amazing video. These four horrible radical left Democrat investigations of your all-time favorite president, me, is just a continuation of the most disgusting witch hunt in the history of our country. It's gone on forever with Russia, 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 and Ukraine, 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 and the Mueller hoax. It's an absolute disgrace what's going on. They even spied on my campaign. And remember this, with all of the work that they did on Mueller, no collusion. That's what the answer was, was all no collusion. Whether it's the Mar-a-Lago raid or the unselect committee hoax, the perfect Georgia phone call, it was absolutely perfect. Or the stormy horse Daniels extortion plot. They're all sick, and it's fake news. Our enemies are desperate to stop us because they know that we are the only ones who can stop them, and they know it very strongly. And they're looking at the polls where, not me, but we are up by so much. They can't even believe it. We won twice, and now we've got to win a third time. They know that we can defeat them. They know that we will defeat them. But they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. I'm just standing in their way. And I always will stand in their way. Thank you very much. So Donald Trump has had his Facebook account restored. And he's, today he had his YouTube account restored. And here he is on the bank crisis. With what is happening to our economy, and with the proposals being made on the largest and dumbest tax increase in the history of the USA, 
times five. I figure times five, maybe more than that. Joe Biden will go down as the Herbert Hoover of the modern age. You know who Herbert Hoover is, right? We may have a Great Depression far bigger and more powerful than even that of 1929, as proof the banks are already starting to collapse. We cannot allow a depression to happen. There is no reason for this. We cannot allow it to happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Okay, what else do we have here from Donald J. Trump? Right. Our enemies are desperate to stop us because they know that we are the only ones who can stop them, and they know it very strongly. And they're looking at the polls where not me, but we are up by so much. They can't even believe it. We won twice, and now we've got to win a third time. They know that we can defeat them. They know that we will defeat them. But they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. I'm just standing in their way, and I always will stand in their way. Thank you very much. Bureaucracy, the intelligence services, and all of the rest need to be completely overhauled and reconstituted to fire the deep staters and put America first. We have to put America first. Finally, we have to finish the process we began under my administration of fundamentally reevaluating NATO's purpose and NATO's mission. Our foreign policy establishment keeps trying to pull the world into conflict with a nuclear-armed Russia based on the lie that Russia represents our greatest threat. But the greatest threat to Western civilization today is not Russia. It's probably, more than anything else, ourselves and some of the horrible USA-hating people that represent us at home. The State Department, the defense bureaucracy, the intelligence services, and all of the rest Okay, so his uh, greatest threat to Western civilization today is not Russia. It's probably more than anything else ourselves, former President Donald Trump. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that. <laughs> so uh, our greatest problems are internal. So I, I think uh, Trump is, is nailing it. Richard Spencer does not approve. So he's got a long essay came out March 14th, the end of the road for MAGA. MAGA means make America great again. It says, repugnant is the best word to describe this weekend's protest in Wadsworth, Ohio, against rock and roll drag queen story hour. This new version of the alt-right, or whatever it should be called, leads only to violence and chaos, as did the old alt-right, ultimately. So what the heck is Richard Thank you. 
Okay, Juan Pepe says on Facebook, we need to destroy this whole corrupt system. The system only benefits them, doesn't benefit us, my people. Blacks, Puerto Ricans, we all need to stand together and say, F these people and their whole corrupt system. And uh, Bernard says, a high, all this inflation is essentially just a high wealth tax. It's an extra tax. So... Bernard says, I think the argument against bailing out the $250,000 plus accounts is inflation. Why is Donald Trump running if it's going to be rigged? So when most people say a contest is rigged, they primarily mean that they don't like the results. It doesn't mean that they literally mean that the contest is rigged. So also, you can say that the 2020 elections were, were rigged in some kind of you know, media sense or elite sense or institutional sense without claiming that uh, there was anything wrong with, with counting the, the ballots. So you had all sorts of uh, changes in political legislation with regard to voting and absentee voting. And if you don't think that that was done according to duly constituted authorities then I guess you could make an argument that it was rigged. I don't regard the 2020 election as rigged, but you can't just take people literally. You can take them seriously, but but not literally. So just like a, a sports fan after his team loses a close game says, ah, oh, you know, it was, it was rigged, but uh, it's a way of just trying to reduce the pain. Have I seen the new deep left Joko video on Victor Point? No, I haven't seen any uh joko videos in several months all right let's go back here to richard spencer so he says five years ago the status of civil war monuments was a serious issue worthy of a conversation he sounds like a leftist here worthy of a conversation the status of drag queens less so i don't know i don't see why drag queen story hour is less important than civil war monuments Regardless, the protests that surrounded these hot-button issues become excuses to revel in harassment and mayhem for many participants. It's easy to call the protesters feds, but the fact is most are simply motivated by malice. Well, what Richard calls malice 
is the flip side of love for their people and love for their particular way of life all right so when you when you say people hate all right people hate that which threatens what they love the slogans that cropped up this past weekend victory or death there will be blood are at best vague threats and intimidations at worst they are attempts to inspire others to commit violence against those present at the gathering five years ago as the face of the alt-right i had the feeling of riding high i genuinely cared about the monument issue and i cared about self-promotion this is richard here I told myself a few rotten apples would not spoil the bunch or that i could overcome any bad optics but i wasn't being entirely truthful wasn't being self-critical the regrettable reality is that i more than tolerated the rotten apples i largely played to them as a political base this dynamic brought out the worst in me and i take moral responsibility at another level the dynamic of the 2017 alt-right is returned scrolling through reports i see that the proud boys hate patriot front who can't stand the neo-nazis all of them despise mainstream conservatives all these infighting forces are part of the same movement whether it's promising to eradicate transgenderism at cpac or yelling pedos get the rape rope in ohio the right is fixated on a minor issue that they inflate to the status of absolute evil well i don't think the transgender issue and drag queen story hour is a minor issue it's as significant as any other cultural issue all right we all have a hero system and for traditional people uh drag queen story hour and the promotion of you know transgender realignment is repellent to the traditional hero system uh, this relieves them of having to offer anything resembling a positive vision for society that's not true there is a positive vision from society uh, coming from the right and pretty much anyone on the right is agreed that super predators need to spend more time in prison and just doing that very simple thing would dramatically reduce our crime rates and increase our quality of life the rights agenda for white people or real americans is the prospect that they too might engage in sadism big and small in personal virtually against marginal people look every living thing reacts against that which threatens it right that's true for white people for black people for transgender people for gay people for christians for jews for atheists all right so you can say oh they shouldn't hate they shouldn't protest they should offer a more positive vision but if that you have something that you want to protect right if you have something you believe in then you will fight that which opposes it i too wouldn't take my children to drag queen story hour but the right's obsession with these events their compulsion to endlessly denounce them only covers their own emptiness i just don't see the that as as true i don't see the right as empty it's incredible that one of the promises of trump in 2016 was to end the culture wars and to focus on building something new perhaps it was naive to take such things at face value regardless given enough time any version of maga make america great again will eventually resemble charlottesville january 6 or wadsworth ohio i think that's absolutely ridiculous right uh, donald trump won presidency of the united states he made significant changes in this country he appointed a lot of right-wing judges he finally shut the border right he reconfigured our trade policy all right he didn't how how's my sound luke luke's muting game is spot on tonight a tactical mute am i still muting damn i thought i had it all figured out i thought i was a winner one peppy says nobody's talking about how biden is about to be federally charged with the by the canadian government for releasing something awful on the world okay i'm i'm skeptical I'm skeptical. Damn. 
audio is such a interesting issue <laughs> I was not I was not intending to tactically mute maybe I've got my my threshold up uh, too high okay let me let me rejigger things here is decoding the gurus Australian psychologist Matthew Brown talking about IQ testing and on, and on intelligence testing generally or measurement generally um, aren't going to be particularly <laughs> like they probably never heard of Sam Harris. Most, most normies haven't, you know, um, much less write him an email about it. Um, and the other people who are going to do that are going to be people who are like, you know, sort of in that set, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. big world out there. There's a lot of academics and even in a speciality like cognitive psychology or, or, um, or, or, or trait measurement. Um, yeah, it's, there's a huge number of people. So anyway, I'm, I'm putting my, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not an IQ specialist or an, but I mean, I have read the literature and it is based, the, the, the methodology stuff is all psychometrics and stuff that I understand. And I, and I definitely agree with Ezra Klein on that. It's based on the evidence we have. It's the, the it's, it's cultural, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's where the evidence lies at the moment, putting, putting aside all of the um, politics, there's, there's, there's just no, it's just no strong plausible argument for the alternative. Okay. That's absolutely absurd that there's no strong plausible argument for the alternative that uh, uh, human traits have a genetic origin. All right. You'll see good looking parents tend to have good looking kids. You'll see that p smart parents tend to have smart kids. Athletic parents tend to have athletic kids. Musically gifted parents tend to have musically gifted kids. Verbally gifted parents tend to have verbally gifted kids. Mathematically gifted parents tend to have mathematically gifted kids. So I, I, th this idea that there's no possibility that uh, human traits such as intelligence have a genetic origin is completely absurd. Right? There's such a strong correlation between, for example, brain size and, and IQ that uh, it seems absolutely absurd to think that people could have evolved in different parts of the world under different selection pressures for hundreds of thousands of years and that this would not result in uh, cognitive and intellectual and brain changes. All right. And so uh, Matthew Brown, this decoding the guru psychologist who I enjoy, he's a lefty, but he essentially wants to restrict discussion of IQ just to academics. And so that's kind of the overarching theme for today's show that we live in an increasingly specialized world. We increasingly live under the reign of experts. And the one group in America who is saying no to expert rule are the MAGA crowd, the, the Trump supporters, the, the populace, right? More than anyone else, Donald Trump speaks for those who are tired of rule by experts. Wow. I'll play a little bit more here from Decoding the Gurus. Mm. The Sam Harris Ezra Klein episode was one i'd like there's a there's a couple of episodes with sam that i think would be your like your i don't know like i don't want to say red pilling but like black pilling or whatever against sam like if you give a list of episodes i think they would damage the way that he is perceived and it's not even that you have to agree with everything that ezra says in that thing because i know that there's a, like a division amongst the people that listen to it about and i don't think ezra got everything right i didn't think he had a great answer to the neanderthal point for example but the um the, the thing is that that kept striking me and it, it strikes me through a whole bunch of other content we look at is like if you were if I was going to invite any of you guys on to discuss Charles Murray right like what you might do is spend an evening 
reading his Wikipedia or watching an interview with him or like just doing a little bit of research into what he's done. Right. And, and yet when, when Ezra like brings up his past, just his past books, like, do you know the content of his other books? Sam's like, no. And I, you know, I, that's irrelevant. And like, is it? Is it like because and he makes a good case that it's not irrelevant, right? Because he has the books like Civilization, trying to measure the the like contribution of different societies to human genius or human ingenuity, and he finds that like Western males have contributed the vast majority of uh, like useful culture to the world or geniuses to the world, and like and he did that by counting up stuff in encyclopedias, which is uh, like there's an obvious there's an obvious compound there, but the like. <laughs> That piece of information on its own is highly relevant to how you interpret the, you know, his broader views about IQ and base because it suggests, oh, he's not just like an academic that doesn't care about that and is just following the data. It suggests like he has an agenda. Okay, so is there anyone who's made a good sustained argument for why we should let uh, broke banks just stay broke and woke? Is there anyone who's made a good sustained argument for why we should not guarantee deposits say over two hundred fifty thousand dollars is there anyone who's made a good sustained argument for not rescuing silicon valley bank and yeah it's going it's going broke but overseeing the process so it's not devastating to the wider economy particularly to the startup world so i i want to know who's making the case for not rescuing banks and uh, talking about this with, with a friend, he says that your bank take is similar to your COVID take. So my, my bank take is I don't see how any first world economy can just allow banks to go broke and you know leave depositors over the $250,000 limit high and dry. All right, I'm just not familiar. Yeah, some banks do go broke, but the repercussions of the wider system are always bailed out because I, I just don't know any first world country that would be fine with allowing its entire banking system to to go broke you just couldn't have an economy if that happened and so yeah my my perspective on the banks and my perspective on covid restrictions is i side a little bit more with the experts as opposed to the people so there are some areas where i side more with the populace than with the experts so i am for stopping our funding of ukraine so virtually all foreign policy experts say we absolutely have to fund ukraine it's essential that we stop vladimir putin in ukraine all right that's the virtually unanimous position of the experts the mainstream media the the academics who have expertise in these areas they all say the same thing I disagree with that. I'm on the side of the, the populist MAGA reaction. Let's stop risking World War III. The U.S. has no vital strategic interests in Ukraine. So they're 100% with the populace. I would like to end immigration for all intents and purposes to the United States, to Australia. All right. There again, I'm 100% on the, the side of the populace. But with regard to COVID restrictions, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not a doctor. I'm not uh, a scientist. It seems to me that overall, even though there were many mistakes with the COVID restrictions, that overall our governing class and our experts did more good than harm. And that the lockdowns and other restrictions, uh, I, I think I'm like 60-40. I, I think that they did more, more good than harm. I'm very much pro-vaccines, pro very pro-COVID vaccines in particular. So 
the problem is we're discussing things that require perhaps so much expertise that it's a level of expertise beyond that of what you can expect from someone who's not an expert in the in the area so how do you have a society that is increasingly run by experts who are claiming levels of expertise that are simply beyond the level of even smart non-experts to even comprehend what they're talking about like we we are moving increasingly away from a situation where the people are supposedly sovereign through their elected representatives to where the experts are sovereign and to even question them on social media you would get suspended to even suggest that uh, there was a lab leak origin to covid right that would get you into trouble with facebook with with twitter with with youtube all sorts of the major social media companies to suggest that wearing face masks wasn't effective against COVID would get you strikes, right? I voiced skepticism about the efficacy of wearing face masks outside. So I, was, I thought that uh, wearing face masks when you're inside around a lot of people is probably a good idea. But simply voicing skepticism of wearing, you know, face masks outside, right? Got a strike on YouTube for that. Hey, day one, day two, day 200 of being a girl. And that got Dylan a lot of attention. I mean, how could it not? Day 66, being a girl, and today I'm in nature. Trees, I love them. Water, lakes, I love them. Heels, they're my hiking heels. I love them. Love ya. Dylan's a character and characters get a lot of attention on the internet, but not every big personality gets to sit down with the president, Andrew Barrymore. Mr. President, this is my 221st day of publicly transitioning. God and, love you. Uh, thank you. I can't imagine anybody disliking you. Oh, please. Do you know, do you wanna know, ironically, who uh, dislikes me the most sometimes? Who? Myself. Oh, me too. Oh. A year ago, Drew wouldn't have gotten on her knees for Dylan. She wouldn't have looked twice at him. But now Dylan's a girl, and she's getting all the attention she could possibly want. And it's a lot. Dylan's addicted to attention. He's been mugging for the cameras way before he became a girl. Here's Dylan with a different Drew on The Price is Right. Dylan Mulvaney, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. It is... Yes! You got it! Dylan's a winner! Dylan's a winner! Dylan, nice job, man. Look at that. Uh, we're gonna spin the wheel right after this. It's like the longest celebration of all time. And it keeps going. We'd be here all night. It's good TV. I, I'm not going to lie. What Dylan really wants, though, regardless of gender, is to be famous. Some great, some, uh, great questions from the chat here. How much money in the bank would one need before 
before doing some serious due diligence about the custodian of your money. Okay, the only on. person who wants attention. Kids who see Dylan on TikTok who feel that they've been ignored. Might okay, Jesse Waters does a lot of good shows. He raises a lot of important issues. Okay, so doing due diligence. Again, a regular person, how are you going to effectively do due diligence? You, you, it's like asking, do you do due diligence on the safety of the restaurant where you eat? Do you do due diligence on the milk that you drink? on the candy bar that you eat, right? We simply don't have time and energy to do due diligence on everything. And so it seems reasonable that if the FDIC is allowing a bank to operate, you would expect that it's doing so in, in a responsible fashion. And the world is complicated. So anyone can deposit money in a bank and then the bank has to you know, find ways of earning money on, on the, those deposits or they're going to go broke and we've always had bank failures and we're never going to live in an in a time where you don't have bank failures because it's a complicated task and i don't see really how your average bloke or even your high iq bloke you know your peter teals is going to effectively do due diligence about the lending practices of your bank didn't iceland let its banks go broke okay so silicon valley bank has gone broke but the the wider repercussions to its depositors, all right, and to you know some some of the other people that it's lent money to, all right, that is being cushioned. And same too with with Iceland. Why doesn't the government insure every citizen against theft? Well, because the vitality of lending money and banking, all right, you can't have a first world country if if people don't trust the banks. Right. It's, I just don't know. Name me a first world country where all the major banks just went broke and the government allowed it and didn't step in to cushion the, the blow. So government has to apply its resources judiciously. And you can't have a first world country with citizens having things stolen. Also, it's a lot more difficult to regulate and to recompense citizens, you know, being having having goods stolen as opposed to major banks where there are tens of billions of dollars and there's a lot of uh, paperwork if your possessions in your home get stolen the government normally does not care that's true that's because banks are a different level of importance for a first world economy All right if someone breaks into your home and steals your computer and steals you know five thousand dollars in cash that you have hanging around All right, that's really bad news for you it's going to have limited effects on other people. But if the government didn't bail out Silicon Valley Bank's depositors, right, that would have had massive you know, negative repercussions for the wider economy, particularly the tech sector. So there's some facets of the tech startup sector that was just overwhelmingly getting lending from Silicon Valley Bank. And if that lending was retracted, it would have been the end of all sorts of uh, startups. So uh, w what are some first world nations that haven't stepped in to try to cushion the blow when, when you have you know, th these, these kind of uh, serious bank failures? Man, so much to talk about. Let me try to get my act together. Where there's... Yeah. 
that, yeah. that there's something else there. But like that, that's something that just amazed me with Sam was like, what's that book? Like, no, I don't know the topic. Like, why didn't you Wikipedia? <laughs> like, I mean, the bell curve has a chapter called political recommendations. So it was it's obvious just from that that he's not he's not just being a scientist. Yeah. 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 yeah this is true of a lot of those IQ and race researchers. I mean, we won't. We don't need to. Not just being a scientist. Oh, so to be a scientist, right? If you write about political repercussions of what you're studying, somehow that shows you're not just a scientist. Well, scientists are never not just are never solely scientists, right? They're also human beings. They also have political, social, cultural agendas. They have connections. Uh, science today isn't generally done by the gentleman scholar who who did the science in the 19th century. All right, science today is big science. It requires massive levels of funding, massive levels of bureaucracy, massive levels of paperwork, massive levels of connections. So if you write something negative about someone who may one day, you know, oversee funding for your pet project, right, you'll be absolutely screwed. So scientists have to play the game, right, because now science really is only done with massive levels of, of funding. It's it's not like uh, 19th century, all right, where you could just have the individual going out there and, and doing doing some science. All right, Luke, did you see the play-by-play Jesse Smollett hoax perpetrators, right, doing a play-by-play of what happened? They took our beautiful bench. <laughs> this is where we waited for Jesse to come before we attacked them. So we got here with 10 minutes to spare. And we had to plan our escape route to survey the land. His building is actually right here, right above the stairs that we're going to attack him at. We made sure we got there at 2 a.m. sharp. On the dot. On the dot. We had no phones because he did not want us to bring any phones. He said, so we don't lose them. I don't know if that's really the reason, but you can deduce your own reason. So 2 a.m., he was nowhere to be found. He was not there. So we were like, damn, what do we do? We didn't have no way of contacting him. He had no way of contacting us. So we waited here for about, what, four, four minutes? It was about four minutes, four minutes, but it felt like forever. Because it was cold as balls. So I saw him out the corner of my eye, and I was like, OK, that's him. Let's go. We got to go get this empire. Yeah, that's him. That's him. Is that him? That's that neck. As we crossed the street, we said, hey, to get his attention. Hey, Nick. Hey. He turned around, looked at us, and that's when we started yelling uh, the famous slurs he wanted us to yell. Hey. Aren't you that empire? Empire fat Nick. It's MAGA country. And then he said, what did you say to me? And then that's when I threw the first punch at him. I held the blow, because I didn't want to hurt him, of course. So I made it look real, but I held it. Then we started tussling, moving moving around, and then I threw him to the ground. He wanted it to look like he fought back. That was very important for him, because he said, hey, don't just beat my ass. Make it look like I'm fighting back and whatnot. So we did that. And then I threw him to the ground. And while after I threw him to the ground, I he had no bruise. I wanted it to look more real. So then I threw him to the ground. After I threw him to the ground, I used my knuckle and gave him a noogie. So I went like this. 
Why did I do that? To give him a scar, to give him a mark, to make it look real, like he really did get his ass beat. After I did that, I fake kicked him. I don't know what he was doing. I wasn't paying attention. That's where I came around with the bleach, the infamous bleach in the hot sauce bottle, poured it on his shirt. Then I finally put the rope around his face. I did not put it around his neck. I just placed it on his face, and that's when we took off. Does he smile? That'd be a hoax. Okay, bigger issue. All right, rule, rule by, rule by experts. So it, it's interesting that there is this steadily hardening, wide, you know, widespread perspective that uh, America overreacted to COVID, right? And so the populists and people on the right have often said, you know, we've had this, this totalitarian rule by public health officials. And so Republican dominated states have rolled back the ability of public health officials to declare an emergency. So in California, there is a county health official for every one of the 58 counties. They have essentially unlimited power to shut people down, to shut down life as we know it. So, We've had over a million people, you know, die from COVID. And yet there's this steadily growing consensus that we overreacted to it. The New York Times published a survey last weekend of pandemic recommendations from experts considering the possibility of another outbreak. And in nearly every case, even those taking the most aggressive side of the argument have endorsed mitigation measures that were no stronger and usually weaker than those put in place in the spring of 2020. Right, and this is against a hypothetical disease they considered both more transmissible and more deadly than COVID. So faced with a disease that would spread more quickly than COVID, kill more of those infected than COVID, right? And a disease that was markedly rebalanced toward the young, the experts would vote in general to do less. Right? 30 states, legislatures have passed laws limiting public health powers in the wake of the pandemic. Right. Most of these states are in Republican control, but not all. Right. We now have outright bans against health officials or governors from issuing mask mandates, closing schools or businesses. And if you don't close schools, you're not you're not serious about uh, dealing with some kind of influenza epidemic. And what's striking is how little consideration they give to the particular attributes of future outbreaks. This is David Wallace Wells here writing in The New York Times. So think about the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919. It was largely young people who died from it, right? With COVID, the, the average age of death is you know close to 80. So our country is emerging from three years of death, disruption, and suffering. We've got over a million cases of, of COVID deaths, and we have an excess death rate, you know, approaching 2 million. And what's the lesson that we're taking, right? That uh, we should do less mitigation, which is which is stunning, right? This is the new phase of the pandemic revisionism. Uh, looks like brain fog. The, the deadliest public health crisis in a century. So out of our focus and our collective memory, we find ourselves talking at the level of abstract principles. So they bear no relationship to the brutal reality of the early pandemic. So rights are great, right? Freedom of assembly, freedom of worship, right? All that stuff's great. Abstract principles are great, but they have to be applied to different situations. When you've got a massive, you know, influenza pandemic, then there is a case 
to, to be made for restricting some of these, these rights. You'll never have government that doesn't have the power to take emergency measures, right? States of exceptions, Carl Schmidt called them. So whenever the government declares a real emergency, a putative emergency, a false emergency, it then starts taking away rights. But if the government didn't have the ability to do that, all right, no, no government could survive because the primary task for every government must be survival. You know, we live in a constantly changing world. We're all incredibly vulnerable. And so essentially to, to avoid getting raped and pillaged, uh, murdered, tortured, stolen from and oppressed, we all have to make, make our peace with the Leviathan, right? The Leviathan is the state, right? Because without the state, uh, our lives from a Hobbesian perspective, a Carl Schmitt perspective would be, you know, short, nasty, uh, brutish, and just generally disgusting. So we give up a lot of rights to have the government protect us. And so this is this is the implicit deal that, that gives us the, the modern first world forms of, of government. So it's interesting. We're not thinking about how different circumstances require different responses. Right? We seem to be modeling policy for future pandemics based on the world we inhabit now. And then think about all the essays about China. Right? China had all these protests against the country's zero COVID policies. Right? You had a country of 1.3 billion people with almost no exposure to the virus itself, probably. And Western commentators quick to declare a debate club victory called China's stubborn COVID containment policy an obvious failure. Well, China's, it's hard to get accurate numbers from, from China, obviously. But the, the median guesses, right, are that uh, China had about one quarter the per capita death toll the United States with regard to COVID. Like even the, the highest excess death rates in China, right, only amount to half the, the lowest end of the American estimate for COVID death rates. So the experts, it's interesting, the experts with regard to pandemics seem to be intimidated by the people, right? So nobody rules on their own. Even Nikita Khrushchev, the, the dictator of the Soviet Union, all right, he got forced out after he was humiliated by John F. Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963. And so even the pandemic experts, the public health experts, the one who told you that you couldn't go to church and you couldn't go to the beach and you, you, know, you couldn't leave your house and you couldn't go to work, right? You may think these people are all powerful, but they have been pretty strongly intimidated by the huge backlash to COVID restrictions. And there is this growing, strengthening, hardening consensus that, uh, hey, we just went overboard with regard to COVID-19. And it's interesting to see how the, the experts are essentially going, going along with it. Now, there's a lot of talk in, in the news media about when will, when will Russia's elite rebel against Putin, right? How long will the Russians put up with, with Putin, right? So, good question, and there's a great answer here at New York Review of Books, right? Why do the elite in Russia still support Putin, right? And you have an expert here saying, 
Russia's elites will not dare turn against Russian President Vladimir Putin. For all his failures, Russia's leader remains their best bet for preserving the regime that keeps them safe. That's why everyone doesn't turn against the government in open rebellion. Because for all his flaws, the United States government, the Australian government, the English government, even the Russian government, right, remains our best bet for staying safe, right? If you didn't have the government, if you didn't have the police, if you didn't have law enforcement, all right, men would tear each other apart. That's a traditional Jewish teaching. There's a prayer for the government in every synagogue, in, in every nation, every week, because the, the Jewish perspective for thousands of years is you should pray for the welfare of the secular you know, non-Jewish government, because without it, men would tear each other apart. Right, so that's the traditional perspective on human nature is that we're not basically good and without fear of the government, men will tear each other apart. So the country's elites will not dare turn against President Putin. Well, regular people won't dare turn against the American government as long as it remains their best bet for staying safe. Our elites, our middle brow, our lower middle class, our working class, our destitute, our richest citizens, right? There will be no concerted movement against the government as long as the government remains the best bet for keeping safe. So I was reading another great uh, New Yorker article about Chekhov, and it kind of reminds me of the news. Because here, here we go. Latest issue of the New York Review of Books, April 6, 2023, New York Review of Books. How straightforward Anton Chekhov's stories seem, and yet how strangely moving. Like the soul, they appear simple, but they are profoundly mysterious. So Janet Malcolm stresses how the Chekhov, each person's soul, harbors a secret accessible to no one else. So we've got the news going down, but the news contains all sorts of secrets that we don't have, right? So here's the Chekhov best-known short story, The Lady with the Dog. So the hero is pondering the secret love affair that constitutes his real life. Right? I don't share with you my real life. You know, my real life goes on behind you know, that door. Right? Uh, we all hide our, our real life. Right? What's really going on with us, we don't share. You know, all personal life rests on secrecy, and all significant events, you know, Dominantly, you know, rest on secrecy as well. We only get to see the shadows on the cave. So for this one man in this Chekhov short story, his secret love affair, that is his real life. So just think for a minute, what is your real life? So on this show, you know, I may present I'm happy, I'm healthy, I'm, I don't know, socially conscious, or how do I, how do I present? I'm uh, a normal bloke. I'm, I'm cheery, I'm energetic, I'm, I don't know, I want to appear, you know, m respectable. But when, when I turn off the camera, like, I might be a lot more vulnerable. So, for example, I went on a hike about uh, a few weeks ago, and at the end of the hike, I, I ran into four people I knew. And, and they greeted me, I greeted them, we said hi, and then they walked on, I walked on. And I, I thought, they'd never asked me to go hiking. I've just been hiking for four hours on my own. How much of a loser am I 
Now, I've been hiking on my own. This would have been so much more fun if I'd been hiking with other people. But I don't talk about that on a live stream, right? I haven't ruminated on that, but you know, less than an hour, right? <laughs> I just spent less than an hour ruminating on that. But yeah, there are all sorts of parts of my life that I'm not going to share on a live stream. The, the most you know vulnerable, tender parts of me, I'm not going to you know share share for the world, just as it is for you. So we all have you know a personal life where what truly matters we basically keep to ourselves. So his real most interesting life was under the cover of secrecy. All personal life rests on secrecy because civilized man is so nervously anxious that his personal privacy should be respected. So even when the Chekhov characters wish to reveal their deepest secrets, they usually find that they cannot be put into words. So when the hero of this Chekhov short story, The Kiss, tries to tell his fellow officers about the chance event, a kiss that changed his life, he cannot convey what made it so transformative. Nobody understands, and so the hero vows never to confide again. So, so too with the personal, think about the political. All right, so much is going on in our politics, in our banking system, right, with our military, in the world around us, and we only get the barest of intimations. So there was one letter that Anton Chekhov received in March 1886 that completely changed his view of himself. So what would it take you to completely change your view of yourself? All right, so... This veteran writer, Dmitry Grigorovich, offers his unsolicited opinion that Chekhov was a major literary talent and urged him to take his work more seriously. So how would I be affected if someone reached out to me and said, Forty, you're a major streaming talent. I just urge you to take your streaming more seriously. So Chekhov, this famous writer asserted, should not write so hurriedly and instead should make each story the work of genius that it could be. I am convinced... You'll be guilty of a great moral sin if you do not live up to these hopes. All that is needed is esteem for the talent which so rarely falls to one's lot. So what if someone says something like that to you? How would your life change if someone was convinced, someone who was famous and respectable and you respected, and they said, you should take your talent more seriously. You'll be guilty of a great moral sin if you do not live up to your talents. All that is needed is for you to esteem the talent that you have. And then uh, another Chekhov short story here on the road. So you've got a man, Lakarev, and he's trapped in an inn during Christmas Eve. And he tells this woman about his life of serial commitment to one ideology after another. Boy, does that, <laughs> that remind me of myself. I have been an intellectual gigolo. Right, falling in love with one beautiful idea after another, but ultimately staying loyal to none. And so he describes his life as typically Russian, just total commitment to one ideology after another. So he says, Russian life presents us with an uninterrupted succession of convictions and aspirations. It has not yet the faintest notion of lack of faith or skepticism. If a Russian intellectual does not believe in God, it means he believes in something else, like Marxism. So this protagonist has never experienced either disillusionment or skepticism because whenever he abandons one belief system, he immediately adopts another. Man, that sounds like me. <laughs> At first, he was fanatically devoted to science. Then he abandons science for nihilism. Then he abandons nihilism for populism. And he feels in his gut, I love the Russian people with poignant intensity. I love their God and I believe in the Russian God. And his enthusiasm... It's infectious, especially to women. And so 
he and his woman listening with pleasure one day to a crowd singing a popular ditty. Hi, you little Russian lad. It's not the same without the, the musical accompaniment, guys. Hi, you little Russian lad. Bring your sharp knife. We will kill the Jew. We will kill him, the son of tribulation. So why did Chekhov include these terrible verses? That these verses are appalling is his whole point, right? The protagonist enjoys them. Like they've got a catchy tune. It's like throw the Jew down the well. He looks feelingly at the singers. He taps his feet in time because of his popular sympathies. So when you read books on populism by Jews, they're almost always negative. While if you read books on populism by, say, Southerners or non-Jewish Americans, they're frequently even-handed to positive because Jews have everywhere pretty much been a stranger and Jews have rarely been popular. So it is a Jewish instinctual response to fear and loathe populism. So this tune is catchy. He's got popular sympathies, meaning populism reflects, you know, the general will of the people. And at the time, all right, you'd had a Jewish woman played a prominent role in the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. And in retaliation, Russia had all these murderous pogroms against Jews. So the, the people's will, the, the populace, you know, exploited or harnessed this anti-Jewish sentiment and maybe they had rational reasons they they had their reasons all right different forms of life have different interests different groups of people have different interests so there are reasons why the Arabs and the Palestinians you know loathe the Jews and there are reason why many Jews have uh, negative feelings about Christianity and there are rational reasons why many Christians have negative feelings about Jews right different groups have different interests different understandings of history they have different hero systems and to be human is to have infinite wants but human resources are limited so you bring together diversity and proximity and you frequently get tragedy so in august 30 1881 the executive committee of the people's will right populist party in russia issued a manifesto written in ukrainian and addressed to the good people and all the honest folk in ukraine it is from the Jews that the Ukrainian folk suffer most of all, who has gobbled up all the lands and forests, who runs every tavern. Jews, whatever you do, wherever you turn, you run into the Jew. It is he who bosses and cheats you, he who drinks the peasant's blood. So there's a genuine conflict of interest between Jews and non-Jewish Ukrainians, because Jews in Eastern Europe in particular were middleman minorities, where they would often get the right to tax people to collect taxes to carry out the, the sovereign's will or the nobility's will they would operate middleman businesses such as lending money they would operate taverns they were in the the real estate game all right and so the non-jews experienced genuine conflicts of interest with the, the jews who were frequently their overseers so readers like the hero in this story first sense the attractiveness of populism but then the story turns and exposes the horror that uh, charismatic idealism can lead to All right so that was something from the new york review of books but i think it also speaks to what's going on in the news if you just look a little more deeply All right back to decoding the get news. into it because knows very well 
uh, I'm sure you all do, that they, they have a lot of strange interests, you know. They're not, they're not like your typical uh, academic researcher who's studying. Like, you know, the vast majority of people who use IQ or study IQ don't care about race. They don't do anything. It's nothing, you know, it's, it's, not, it's just not a thing, you know. And then there's a whole group who never published on anything else, you know. And it, it kind of really irritates me because I had a lot of, I mean, I think um, silly, really, um, um, just not arguing. I think he's going after Noah Carl here who was fired from Cambridge University. Now, Nathan Kofnis played the game differently. He didn't publish in the journals that Noah Carl published, so they tried to cancel Nathan Kofnis, but Kofnis so far has survived them. But just, just discussions with um, with people online who have recently come to agree with, like Amanda Cicada and I, were at loggerheads because he, you know, he, like me, thought that stuff was bullshit, but felt obliged to, I guess, sort of dismiss intelligence completely as a psychological measure, as a construct, um, just on kind of first principles, so nothing to do with race. And, and, and we, we recently had a discussion where he, sits, he, he, he tweeted something which was like, the, the only people who should be who should care about IQ are, are clinicians who are looking to identify, say, mm. say a child who's struggling at school and needs needs special assistance, or you know, pure, purely the, theoretical researchers who, who, who you know, psychologists who are studying something, um, you know, for purely academic reasons. And I was like, right, he wants to keep you know this most valuable tool for understanding reality he wants to keep it just to the elites doesn't want regular people to have access to iq studies and their implications yes absolutely <laughs> completely right nobody else should be thinking about it you know it is not it is not something that should be factored into your political worldview or anything yeah I, I, go ahead chris no i was just going to say uh, that i would have a lot more respect for people if they kind of know that that thing that like you know they're this is their interest and then they say well but it is a little bit strange that there's a large amount of people publishing in this area who also have uh you know these strange like quite extreme political views or they were on the editorial board of a neo-nazi journal by accident like one of the uh, famous iq guys uh, recent iq guys and that's absurd to call this you know some neo-nazi journal and like those like it's fine you like if they just acknowledge that that's unusual like the whole noah carl thing if you don't remember him the cambridge academic that got like kind of removed from his position like when i saw quillette's profile of him it just paints him as this like young researcher up and coming who dared to touch on the shibboleth of uh like iq and, and was you know destroyed because of it but if you look at his publication output it's like his interests are unusual and he's publishing in a uh, like a vanity journal where 50% of the articles are by the editor and the main topics are Muslim crime, recent IQ and uh, like the negative impact of immigrants. Right. And and that's that's fine. But that's an unusual thing for someone to do. So like if I was writing a profile of him, you could still write the defense about academic freedom and that. But you could know. Yeah. You know, his. His publication output is, in general, like kind of normal, except he has these uh, notable divergence from uh, normal scholars. And I, but I see people that are kind of unable to factor that in. Like Stephen Pinker and stuff wrote a letter as if like he he had been just hounded out unfairly. And I just want them to like, if you're going to take that stance, just do a bit of research and be like, because in that case, it wasn't just that he published in the art, that journal. He was somebody who wrote pieces defending why that journal was as of high quality as like normal journals. So like he was, he was all in on it. And I, yeah, I just find few people that like will factor that in. They'll just take and present it as an idealized, um, you know, fighting freedom of speech guy. But uh, anyway, I, I sidetracked. So Mihai, what were you going to say? Um, 
I was going to say that <clears throat> Sam Harris is not the only guru who who likes to talk about IQ. Like Jordan Peterson also makes a big deal out of IQ. He he's on record saying that one tenth of the population, the bottom one tenth in IQ, are um, unable to function in a cognitively complex society. Um, and you know, then you have. So IQ is the single easiest, most robust, replicable tool in the social sciences for understanding reality, but they don't want you to have access to it. They don't want you to notice that uh, different groups have, have different gifts and most human traits, virtually all human traits are heritable. Why would intelligence not be? Have, uh, gurus like Taleb who write, write pieces like uh, um, IQ is, high, uh, is largely a pseudoscientific swindle yeah. and and, they, and he makes the, the, the good points of like, uh, you know, you can't um, uh, put intelligence down to a single number or you cannot factor out the environment uh, when measuring IQ. Um, but he'll also come. Uh... Yeah, I, I don't know any serious scholar who reverences IQ or who, who thinks that IQ is everything. Right. And I don't know any serious scholar of IQ who thinks it's that uh, environment and it has absolutely nothing to do with IQ or culture has nothing to do with, with IQ. So yeah, I, I don't see IQ nationalism. I don't see a lot of, you know, reverence for IQ It's simply a, a, a very effective tool for discerning reality and uh, making predictions about life outcomes and understanding why, you know, some people and some countries right uh, much more successful and uh, make a lot more money than other people so all things being equal a large number of people with a 100 iq will out earn those with an 85 iq and in turn they will be out earned by those with a 110 or a 120 or a 140 or a 160 iq even at the the 145 160 levels the, the higher your iq the higher people achieve the more patents they take out right the uh, the more of a substantial difference they are likely to make in the world because iq is a pretty good proxy for your cognitive abilities and you know your your thinking your brain your intelligence has has a profound effect has the potential to have a profound effect on the world around us to it from an angle of oh the psychologists are idiots and they can't use statistics and yeah it's uh, stephen mullenew advised people to put their iq into their cvs uh. Yeah, I mean, like like stepping back a little bit, I mean, it's, it's almost terrible for a discipline when one of their constructs becomes and is or is a popular, you know, has this strong popular um, interest and this strong moral valence as well. Like, like I, I really envy like physicists who study black holes and things like that or entomologists who look at, you know, insects because, you know, nobody cares. And that's that's good, you know. <laughs> and and I, <laughs> entomologists, that's... I know, I know, I love entomologists. Um, so, you know, and, you know, so in, in, it's kind of an interesting parallel that psychology has kind of, um, I think, suffered for the same reason that some of those philosophical um, areas that form the basis of critical theory and postmodernism. Yeah, postmodernism, for example, right? You know, it, it attracted this huge political culture. Okay, let's go back to my debate with my friend. He says that your take on the banks is similar to your take on COVID. Yeah, and that is, I don't bow down to the experts, but I don't deride them as much as the populace. So I'm, I'm in the middle between the populace and the experts. 
when it comes to things like uh, COVID and you know, cushioning the the blow of you know a bank going broke for, for the wider economy. So my friend says, you have a reflexive desire to throw in with the elites. Well, as I mentioned, there are tons of areas where I just completely disagree with elites. So elites frequently say it's fine if a boy transitions to be a girl, has his penis and balls chopped off and, and grows breasts. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, elites say we need lots of immigration. I say we need no more immigration. Elites say we need to fund Ukraine give it everything it needs to fight Russia, I say we should not fund Ukraine. Uh, so many, many issues where I disagree with elites. But uh, my friend says it's not out of status on your part. It's because you actually believe the apologetics for their corruption. The country won't fail if a bank goes under. That's the lie. No, no one's saying the country will fail if one bank goes under. People are saying who support cushioning the blow of Silicon Valley Bank going under that will be better off uh, subsidizing and cushioning the blow so that uh, there isn't you know more widespread damage to the economy and to other banks All right the idea that the country would fail if one bank goes under that's the hysteria manufactured by the media to have people okay with a bailout of China no it's it's a matter of do you want to you know see you know, a massive recession or do you want to see, you know, a massive number of uh, tech startups crashing, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going out of work, all right? It's not a matter that one bank, Silicon Valley Bank, is not going to take down the whole United States, but it could have a negative effect on the overall economy. My friend says, you will always fall for successful and attractive people's version of events. Maybe that's good. Maybe it serves you 90 out of 100 times. Well, I have highly politically incorrect opinions on many issues which are not held by the successful and the attractive. I notice you have taken the Andrew Morant's deconstruction as refutation style. I don't know where you get that. So Andrew Morant never lets anyone right of center make a strong argument. By simply understanding how Tucker creates his message, you have negated the message. That's a liberal tactic to explain phenomena that are clear and easy to understand and saying it's because of their communication ability. Now, I don't say that uh, Tucker is successful because of his communication ability. In fact, I say the very opposite. Tucker is successful because he meets a hunger in people, right? Pundits are not successful because they're so brilliant or unique. Pundits are successful to the degree that they articulate what uh, many people believe, but either don't feel safe saying or they just want to see someone fighting on their side. So my perspective is very opposite. All right. You get an audience and you get a following and you get success as a pundit by telling a particular audience what it wants to hear. So my question again is, who makes the best case for just letting broke banks go broke? Who makes the best case for letting depositors over $250,000 lose their money? I just want to read that essay. My friend says, you won't read it in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. You're reasoning backwards. You're you are using appeal to authority. It's a logical fallacy. It's a straw man. Let the banks fail. Well, I want to read someone's argument. That's not an appeal to authority because anybody can create an argument, put it up on a blog, on a Twitter thread. So, no, you don't need some left-wing publication to publish your argument, right? I'm happy to read it on a blog or on a substack.
play a little bit more here from decoding the Draw uh, attention and has generated just the most crazy um, um, dynamics on, on all sides. So, so psychology, and the same is true of other um, disciplines in, in the social sciences, is because it's about people, then and, and, and the concepts seem easy to understand. Like if people go IQ, oh, I, I know what IQ is, you know, but actually no, it's, 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 it's an extremely technical thing. It's just, it's a measure. It's sort of different from the construct of intelligence, first of all. Anyway, I could go on, but there's, for, for someone who's trained in these things, and I, I'm sure this is true of a philosopher who's trained in, you know, continental um, 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 thinking of the early 20th century, when they use these technical terms, there's all of these caveats and, and, and things attached to it. And, and, but when, it, it, when, the, when, when the word or the concept moves into the popular sphere, then it just gets abused terribly. <laughs> yeah. mm. That's the... Anyway, everyone should just stop thinking about it. Just think about what you're having to watch. <laughs> so uh, since we have hit the like R mark and we're also keeping Mihail up. Okay, so interesting New York Times op-ed. I really like this Turkish sociologist, Zeynep Tefeki. She was the first person I remember in the mainstream media who in March, I believe, of 2020, tried to make the case for masks. Now she's out March 10, 2023 with a column. Here is why the science is clear that masks work. She says the debate over mass effectiveness in fighting the spread of coronavirus intensified recently when a respected scientific nonprofit said its review of studies assessing measures to impede the spread of viral illnesses found it was uncertain whether wearing masks helped slow the spread of respiratory viruses. Now, the organization Cochrane says that the way it summarized the review was unclear and imprecise and that some people interpreted it wrong. Now, Cochrane reviews are often referred to as a gold standard evidence in medicine. They do what is known as a meta-analysis. They take all these studies and put them together to try to get the, the gold standard of what's true and what's false. Right? Cochrane reviews, the one that said that masks don't help, are frequently referred to as gold standard evidence in medicine because they aggregate results from many randomized trials to reach an overall conclusion. Masks and mandates have been hot controversy, of course. This uh, review assessed 78 studies, but only 10 of those focused on what happens when people wear masks versus when they don't. What we learned from the Cochrane review is that, especially before the pandemic, distributing masks didn't lead people to wear them. Let's look more broadly at what we know about wearing face masks. The question of whether a mask reduces a wearer's risk of infection is not the same as whether wearing masks slows the spread of respiratory viruses in a community. Why aren't there more randomized studies on masks? It's a shame we haven't, but it would be hard and unethical to deny masks to some people once they were available to all. Japan emphasized wearing masks, mitigating airborne transmission, had a remarkably low death rate in 2020, didn't have any shutdowns, it rarely tested, and it didn't do a lot of tracing. So one political scientist calculates that before vaccines were available, U.S. states without mask mandates had a 30% higher COVID death rate than those with mandates. Then we have various natural experiments showing that uh, before mask mandates, the infection rate among healthcare workers doubled every 3.6 days. After universal masking was required, the rate stopped increasing, then quickly declined. Consistently wearing a mask, preferably a high-quality, well-fitting face mask, provides protection against the coronavirus. 
So why the fuss must have become a symbol of frustration over shortcomings in the pandemic response. So experts generally say you need to wear masks. Popular resistance is the experts are wrong. Now, the lead author of this Cochrane review, Tom Jefferson, said of masks that the review determined there's just no evidence that they make any difference. Now, it's no surprise that Jefferson says he has no faith in mass ability to stop the spread of COVID. He said there is no basis to say that coronavirus is spread by airborne transmission, despite the fact that major public health agencies have long said otherwise. He has long doubted well-accepted claims about the virus. He wrote in April 2020, he questioned whether the COVID outbreak was a pandemic at all. Said that there was no point in mitigating to slow the spread of COVID. That's what he was saying in April 2020. So anyway, good uh, pushback against the Cochrane Review here in this essay by Zeynep Tefeki. Right, how are you enjoying the age of... Uh, Easy money. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. In a special frontline investigation, we're now facing a world of many potential outcomes. The inside story of an age of easy money. Every financial function had failed, and we had to restore them. Do you think it was a radical policy? I most certainly did think it was a radical policy. The Fed inject money into the economy. Fueled by recent government stimulus programs. When the Fed changes to the primary engine of economic growth, it's supposed to be our democratic institutions that do that, not the central bank. And an uncertain future. Pain for American families. It's not just that we're getting more calls, it's that the folks who are calling us are in greater distress. Correspondent James Jacoby investigates. How remote is the possibility that there could be much higher unemployment in the next couple of years? I mean, I wouldn't say it's remote. Now on Frontline. It really is difficult to overstate how important this story is and how much it matters. I don't know if I can safely say that we're at the bottom because of what we're looking back at, this age of easy money. Okay, it looks like Mr. a Chairman pretty General good Powell docker here. Powell an annual economic summit in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's a speech. Yep, we're on. Powell and his colleagues at the Fed are under pressure to curb inflation. Powell could take a harder line, or he could simply play his cards close to the best. Here we go. He's on the move. It's going to be a tough crowd at Jackson Hole because of the fact that he made a call simply last year that didn't age well. Now, every year, Federal Reserve holds an economic symposium at Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August. It's sort of like the Oscars of the Fed world. And, you know, media comes from all around the world. And the Fed chairman gives a keynote speech that gets all the attention. All eyes on Jackson Hole this Jackson morning. Hole, He's giving a speech as central banker to the world. So Jackson Hole plays a very important role in the central bank community because you're basically bringing the central bankers of the world and economists to a place to discuss critical issues. So people look to Jackson Hole to see, is there a reset in monetary policy? Yeah. The economy has slowed. Yeah, yeah. We're likely in recession and perhaps going deeper into it. Are they going to keep taking us down this road? Are they going to keep slamming the brakes on rates, raising 75 basis points until we've got job cuts across the corporate sector? Central bankers were saviors post-global financial crisis. This time, it was different. The mood was more, uh, you know, for the first time, uh, we're failing. Is 
Powell ready to risk recession? This is the question. Chair Powell, the floor is yours. Please come to the podium. Jackson Hole in 2022 was quite important. Thank you, Peter, and good morning, everyone. The market were feeling in the summer that maybe the Fed would have a pivot, would stop raising rates and maybe start cutting them. The market started talking about a Fed pivot. Market, so maybe they'll... So I like uh, PBS Frontline documentaries. Yeah, that tend to be left-wing, but uh, interesting. They're well done. Similarly interesting article here in the New York Times. What is wrong with getting a little free legal advice? So Constitution, you would think, would give everyone the right to give and to receive free advice about the challenges of life, including legal problems. Right? The U.S. Constitution requires that law censoring speech must be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling purpose. States can protect people from bad or fraudulent advice, but not by forbidding everyone but a lawyer from helping others in their community with their legal problems. That goes too far because people who do not have a lawyer could benefit from free advice about common legal problems from someone with training or someone with experience that they know and that they trust, even if that person is not a lawyer. But uh, it's a, it's a big, uh, big crime to give legal advice if you're not a lawyer, particularly in New York. And so this pastor who wants to help out his congregation with their debt problems, wants to you know, direct them to some very simple resources, right? He could very well get sued because of the stringent laws that, you know, only the experts, only the lawyers are allowed to give legal advice. So our country is increasingly you know, run by experts. I like to think that this is the overarching theme, that this is one coherent show tonight. It's not just uh, an odd and bizarre melange, right? And the, the best books on this topic are by the philosopher Stephen Turner, who wrote Liberal Democracy 3.0, Civil Society in an Age of Experts. So he talks about the slow transformation from a politics of sovereign citizens to a politics of diffused experts who are not accountable to the citizens, all right? Electoral struggles have been supplanted by commissions, by expert bodies. So in the 19th century, the voting franchise was restricted. And then in the 20th century, we got government by discussion with full franchise. And now, so democracy 1.0, liberal democracy 1.0 was the 19th century form of democracy with a limited voting franchise. Then liberal democracy 2.0 was uh, democracy in the 20th century with a full franchise and government by discussion. Now, liberal democracy 3.0, we've got civil society in an age of experts where discussion is limited to those topics not delegated to experts. And so this idea that experts are just apolitical is itself political. Right? Try to imagine a historian in the distant future faced with the task of explaining the significance of the 20th century identifying the remarkable transformations within it, such as the development of science and technology. And second significant transformation is in the realm of politics. So the century began as an age of empires. Now we have, you know, the age of technocrats and experts. So what are the connections between these two developments and what were the consequences for science and for liberalism of having their dramatic turns of fortune occur simultaneously? And so if you want to then look at political science theory, what does it have to say about rule by experts? You'll get essentially complete absence of any discussion of rule by experts and discussions of science. 
the greatest single work of liberal political philosophy of the late 20th century, John Rawls's Theory of Justice, published in 1971, is utterly devoid of any mention of science. The most influential American critics of Rawls, such as libertarian Robert Nozick, right? He writes passionately and seriously about contemporary politics, but completely ignores science. So we're told that experts are needed by a liberal democracy, but only experts understand experts. Only experts understand what experts are talking about. Only experts understand what is properly a matter for expert knowledge. And so only experts get to decide what belongs in the expert domain, what belongs in the popular domain. So experts can place topics that uh, you may want subject to public discussion, such as IQ results and you know different IQ uh, scores among different groups. But uh, should should we not allow you know experts to decide whether this should be open to public discussion? Right. So Western politics really emerged out of the 17th century, out of conflicts uh, over beliefs in God. So in particular the nasty 30 years war in Germany the Protestants and the Catholics were going at each other and so Europe did not want to repeat that kind of death and suffering so it, it increasingly became liberal meaning government by discussion so this developed right out of an attempt to transform and transcend you know, wars of religion and so we got a different kind of convention right we ex tried to exclude religion from politics and we tried to make the government supposedly neutral right so liberalism arose in its modern form out of the wars of religion that racked Europe in the 17th century one of those issues in the wars was the relationship between religion and the state particularly question of state policy in relation to religious minorities Jews or persons whose religion was different from and offensive to the religion of the rulers. So these wars demonstrated that religious controversy and religious diversity disrupted the state. They threatened social peace, led to often to civil warfare. And so how do we neuter these controversies? So that's when we got the rise of liberalism, where people would get to vote for their representatives who would then talk things out. And we got the state disengaging from actively supporting religion or enforcing religious practice. So we had constitutions that essentially tied the hands of the states to refuse to be involved in religious questions and to firmly move them into the private sphere. So First Amendment of the Constitution, all right, Congress may not make any laws that establish religion. They'll just ease up a bit. The market is, I think, anticipating that they're going to blink. Reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below-trend growth. And what uh, Powell told them and Jackson always said, listen, inflation is still way too high. It's not peaking. It's not going to fall fast enough. And if you guys think that we're going to stop raising rates or even cutting them, you're a bit delusional. The U.S. economy is clearly slowing from the historically high growth rates of, of 2021. I think the chair's objective in Jackson Hole was to deliver a very concise message that we know what our job is. Our job is to get inflation back down to 2%, and we're going to do what we need to do to get it back down to 2%. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. 
but a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. His remarks were remarkably brief for a Jackson Hole speech, and that was by design to deliver a very direct message, and I think his message was very effective. Pain. 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 Some pain. Pain ahead. Pain for American families. What he calls some pain means putting people out of work. Jay Powell is not messing around. And that is when the market kind of reacts and says, oh my God, things are gonna change. Restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. If the Fed puts us into a higher interest rate world, it will change everything. The financial system globally has been built around extremely low, ultra low interest rates for 10 years. All of these things that got built up over the last decade are going to have to be dismantled or changed. Okay, so you may think, why are those public discussions matters of public interest? Why are they so trivial? frequently and you see this in England over the past two weeks the number one story was this former English soccer player who hosts a BBC sports show he tweeted that the conservative government in England had installed an immigration policy that was akin to the Nazis and he got suspended by the BBC and then all his fellow presenters and all the soccer players united with the BBC presenter and they refused to you know, fill in the gaps when he left. So why do we have so much trivia dominating people's attention? Because the most important issues have been removed from public discussion and turned over to experts, right? When you have rule by experts, right, it just leaves the people to talk about trivia, right? You, you go to the mainstream news media and, you know, so much of it is just so doggone trivial. And this is uh, Janesh, Janan Ganesh in the Financial Times here. So why, why do we have so much frivolity in the news? So he says, Britain is a nation that gets lost in froth and frivolity because on the serious stuff it is stuck. All right, let us count the different kinds of deadlock in the kingdom. Britain knows that Brexit was a mistake. It also knows that revising the decision would open the gates of domestic political hell. So the governing class prefers a conspiracy of, if not silence, then awkward terseness on the subject. Britain knows what can spur economic growth, house building, shift in taxation from the young to the asset earning old. Also knows that NIMBYs, not in my backyard, and pensioners slap anyone who fiddles with the existing settlement. So the opposition Labour Party does not propose to do much more than the ruling Conservatives to displease them. Britain knows that its public services could do with more cash. It knows its tax burden is nearing long-time highs. State of the Union is at an impasse. This is a stalemate society. All the energy that would ordinarily go into the debating and doing of meaningful change now finds an outlet in proxy wars about petty things, such as this Gary Lineker affair. And the rolling melodrama of Prince Harry and Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, is another. So with no movement on the big questions, no projects to be getting on with, expect Britain to throw itself into ever more sagas about nothing. Consider these low-stakes simulations of the debates it should be having. Least France goes direct. Least France is ripping itself apart over something important. Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms entail vast public sums and the very contract between citizen and state. And Janan Ganesh says, I had to be reminded in the age of on-demand goal highlights that match of the day, 
this BB show still exists. It's not that we have an unserious political class or an electorate in love with circuses. It is the insolubility of the UK's problems. Brexit is as grim as the reopening of it would be. Fraying public services bother millions, but so would a net increase in taxation. The problem underlying everything, low growth, has cures that are as politically incendiary as the sickness itself. For Britain, on issue after momentous issue, there are no chess moves available that don't hurt its position elsewhere on the board. One recent prime minister was not so defeatist. She defined herself against the stalemate culture. She abhorred the polite ducking of hard choices, but Liz Truss will spend the rest of her life as a punchline. No wonder Britain thinks avoidance isn't so bad after all. Worst fates can befall a people. A phrase sticks in the mind from a different drama in a different country over a decade ago. We do not have time for this silliness, said Barack Obama as he released paperwork to confirm his American birth. Well, Britain has all the time in the world for silliness. What else is there to do? Much of that not is true, not just for Britain, but also for the United States. We will keep at it until we're confident the job is done. Thank you. We lived in a bubble, in a dream, and this dream and a bubble is bursting. Rising interest rates in the U.S. and many other countries are intensifying fears of a recession. Ever since that Fed meeting at Jackson Hole, we've been getting mixed signals about the economy. Is it down for recession or is it in a booming recovery? An economy with such a strong labor market is not in a recession. At the center of the debate are the actions of the Federal Reserve, which seems to have our economic fate in its hands. The Fed is trying to stop inflation. But is the medicine worse than the disease? Lately, it's been raising interest rates at the fastest pace in decades, trying to tamp down on inflation. But for most of the past decade, the Fed was keeping interest rates incredibly low, trying to stimulate the economy, creating what has been called an age of easy money. Tonight, the economic alarms are blaring. For the past two years, I've been investigating the Fed and the far-reaching consequences of its easy money policies. I'm game if you are. I'm, I'm definitely game. I've been speaking to current and former Fed officials. Is that really the first time you're in a suit since COVID? From the waist down. Can I take my mask off? Titans of finance. You were thinking what? I, I was thinking this is the craziest market I've seen in 40 years. Those who follow the decision-making. None of us think about this because it's boring, but it's everything. It touches everything. And those who have been hit the hardest by it. It's like choosing between your rent and your food. They do not understand what everybody's going through. Okay, uh, there aren't a large number of people choosing between rent and their food because of interest gyrations, right? People are forced into those desperate circumstances because of their own dysfunction or their own inabilities or the lack of connection to other people, to, to their family, who would you know otherwise help them out through these difficult times. But we've made freedom of association a lot more difficult, and so that's reduced people's ties to their family, to their friends, to their community, and people are a lot more vulnerable than your average American was, say, 40 years ago, 80 years ago. The Fed's easy money experiment traces back to pivotal decisions made over a decade ago, in 2008, 
You know, right now, breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because... When investors, speculators, and Wall Street bankers nearly brought down the global economy. Okay, with Wall Street shaken to its very foundation today. We're in the midst of a serious financial crisis, and the federal government is responding with decisive action. Okay, another excellent book on this topic of the politics of expertise is a book called The Politics of Expertise 2013 from the philosopher Stephen Turner. So here's an example. The client trusts the lawyer to exert himself on behalf of the client. However, the client is not a lawyer usually. He's not in a position to effectively judge whether the lawyer is probably representing the client or exerting himself on behalf of the client, or even giving the client adequate legal advice and counsel. And the same thing with our experts, whether it's regard to public health or with regard to interest rates. All right. We are not usually economists. We're not usually expert in these areas. It's hard for us to judge whether the experts who are ruling our lives are on our side. So that is why trust is required in this relationship. But the more diverse the society, usually the less social trust, the less you trust that the government's on your side, the less you're likely to trust that the experts are on your side. It's a lot easier to trust the experts when the experts are from your people, when you feel like it's one of your own. So back to the client lawyer. Not only is the client suffering from a deficiency in information, he's also suffering from an inability to make judgments. The lawyer is a person with interests as well, which the lawyer can advance potentially by cheating the client. And experts have interests as well that they can advance possibly by cheating and deceiving us. And we, most people feel that they're less likely to be cheated or deceived if it's one of their own kind, one of their group, right? Unless we find a, a massive way to change human nature, that's how people work. Think about the relationship between a client and a stockbroker. The stockbroker benefits as the lawyer might by doing commission work for the client. Stockbroker advises the client on what work needs to be done. The lawyer advises the client not only about what legal steps to take, but the benefits from the client's decisions to take those legal steps, even if they're necessarily costly to the client, and put thousands upon thousands of dollars to the lawyer or to the stockbroker who is paid for carrying out these steps. So even lawyers, when they hire other lawyers, want the shark to be an entirely altruistic shark who puts their interests before the shark's own interests in every respect. We know that there are some mechanisms for punishing a lawyer or a stockbroker who violates the rules, that the bar associations disbar people. But uh, you may think this has little to do with science. Sharks in science are not sharks on behalf of the interests of a client. But science is also about ambition, scorekeeping, playing by particular rules of the game, and being a shark in debunking misinformation. All right? So the people who are determining our interest rates and our public health policy the, the experts who rule us, they also have their own individual interests. They are ambitious. They want status, prestige, and power. Most people want status, prestige, power, and money. Right? They keep score, and uh, they're not always altruistic. Right? When an academic program awards a degree, an academic journal accepts an article, right? the program or the journal assumes a risk that its assurances of adequacy will not be found out to be false. Because then the consequence of an error is great damage to their reputation, right? And experts, too. They don't want any damage to their reputation, which is why they want to censor and shut down the Internet for spreading misinformation. Much of that misinformation is simply questioning 
the privileges and the relevant expertise of the experts who are ruling us. So with every advance in centralization, the man who uses his hands is brought under subjection by the man who wields the pen. So the secretary began as the servant, ends up as the master. Right, when social activities have to be coordinated from a center like the Federal Reserve, then it's necessary to pick out the pure brains, the men who specialize in thinking. For a thinker is really a man who spends his time making other people think as he does, consequently act as he thinks. That's a quote from 1936. The, Bush administration the president and Congress spent hundreds of billions of dollars to restart the economy, but at the center of the rescue effort was the Federal Reserve. Richard Fisher was the head of the Fed's bank in Dallas at the time. What the Federal Reserve does is provide the blood supply for the body of our capitalist economy. And what happened in 2008 is all the veins in the capillaries and the arteries collapsed. So every financial function had failed. It had collapsed, and we had to restore them. We're at the precipice of the apocalypse. We're on the edge of the abyss. We are in the most serious financial crisis in generations. And there was nothing but panic yesterday. There's been panic all week. The bottom to America's financial woes appear nowhere in sight. The banks are still not lending to one another, and as long as that's not happening, the system remains stuck and imperiled. In normal times, the Fed's job is to promote employment and keep inflation in check, primarily by raising and lowering. So this is Steve, Stephen Turner writing about the EU, but uh, it's also, much of it's also true for the United States former government, right? So Stephen Turner argues that the European Union is intelligible as its own form of rule. It's unlike democracy, but it takes over the functions of democracy. It is a system with a non-democratic, non-majoritarian ideal of consensual agreement between experts as the basis of action. So it has a political class, which is integrated vertically down to regional bureaucracies. It's organized into categories corresponding to highly differentiated bodies of bureaucratic and technical expertise, which take over not only executive functions, meaning the functions of politics, but also the functions of discussion. They get to limit what we can even talk about. In short-term interest rates, making borrowing cheaper or more expensive. But amid the crisis, Fed officials decided to do something they hadn't done in half a century. They began dropping rates, eventually to almost zero. Those massive rate cuts have not been stimulating the economy. So it's the other thing With Americans still suffering and the banking system on the verge of collapse, Fed officials there at the time told me they felt compelled to go even further. And then the question was, what else can we do? And the committee came up with the idea of quantitative easing. Quantitative easing. What in the world is that? Quantitative easing. That's just a, a Greek term to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know what they're going to say about what we call quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, or QE, was championed by Ben Bernanke, then the Fed chairman. The Federal Reserve is committed to using all available tools to stimulate economic activity. So whatever the Federal Reserve does, right, some people will benefit and some people will pay the price, right? Somebody's ox is always going to get gored, right? This is not beyond politics right you, you can't have a reign of experts who are just totally neutral and just following their expertise
and to improve financial market functioning. QE was an experimental way for the Fed to inject money into the financial system and lower long-term interest rates. It's almost like alchemy. You can create money out of thin air if you're at the central bank. So creating more money puts more money in the banking system, put more money out there for the economy to take it and put it to work and to grow and to restore itself. The Federal Reserve has been putting the pedal to the metal. So we're doing everything we can to support the economy. And we hope that that's going to you know, get us going uh, next year sometime. Their hope was that the new money would help shore up the failing banks and get them lending again. It would become the heart of their easy money policies. It was an emergency measure. I mean, the economy was imploding. I mean, no one would lend to anyone. Uh, there was no ability to borrow. There were, the, the economy was going to be a stop dead. Thomas. Okay, so I'm not an expert on banking policy or monetary policy. Once again, it seems to me, from my perspective, that overall bankers and the Federal Reserve and the, the politicians who you know bailed out our financial institutions in 2008, it seems to me overall that they did more good than harm. So I'm not, uh, not quite the populist when it comes to the banks and when it comes to public health measures restricting pandemics like COVID. Other things like uh, immigration restriction, stopping uh, funding Ukraine's war, uh, shifting away from free trade to a more protectionist attitude. Right there, I side with the populist approach. Take care. Have a good job. Bye-bye.